Welcome back to the podcast, folks. This is Conversations with the Mind. Yes, you are in the right place, and I'm your host, Shane LaMaster. I want to start off by thanking all of you listeners. Your continued listenership means so much to us, so please continue to listen and tell your friends and family about the podcast. That's how we spread this conversation, and we get others involved in the conversation. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, please continue to like and share all of our posts when we put these up on social media. It is through your help that we get this message out. Our reach is only so far, but with your help, we can reach so many more people. So please continue to like and share. And if you like the content that you're hearing in these podcasts, please feel free to donate. There is a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app that you're using. Please feel free to donate to that if you find this information valuable in any way. Any amount of donation is accepted, and we appreciate everything that you are willing to donate even if it's a dollar even if it's five dollars please donate to the podcast all proceeds go back into it to make the message better for you and please check out our youtube page support and subscribe to the mind ops youtube page where we break down a number of these concepts and you can find videos on all sorts of topics that we have created so please check it out and here is a word from our sponsor Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored by MindOps.com. You can find us at www.mind-ops.com. We're an eclectic counseling company providing mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, military, through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We are available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. And now to the good news story. All right, today's good news story comes from the Good News Network. You can find this story at goodnewsnetwork.org. I want to give credit where credit is due. That's where we pull most of our good news um, for if anyone's interested. So the title of today's article that we want to go over um, reads, Surfing is now one of the first sports requiring equal pay for women, and lawmakers are following suit. I thought this was really cool, especially since um, I have an extreme passion for um, alternative or extreme sports, and surfing being one of those, and one of these flow-based um Sports where we connect with nature uh, as part of the sport, I just love that. And uh, have always wanted to surf and have always had a passion for um, watching surfing. So I think this is really cool. Uh, let's see. It says the World Surf League announced that it would be awarding the same amount of cash prize money to its male and female competitors. Um, spokesperson said this is a huge step forward in our long planned strategy to elevate women's surfing. And it seems like, um, let's see... Right now, uh, California lawmakers introducing a bill last month which would require all sports competitions being hosted on state property to award equal purses to their male and female athletes. I think that's awesome. Uh, Also being reported by Mercury News, so far, 
surfing, beach volleyball, triathlons, and marathons already award equal amounts of cash prize to male and female competitors. But hopefully, if this bill is approved in California, uh, other states will follow suit and start to pay uh, female athletes the same amount as their male counterparts. I mean, uh, why not? Uh, That should be a thing. That seems pretty obvious. Um, So anyway, that's the good news story for today. I think that's really cool. Um, Always good to see social change moving forward in that way. And uh, now to, you know, my new section of the podcast, the conversation with my mind. Uh, So recently, the conversation in my mind this week has been um, sort of on the negative side, which is, which is okay. You know, I'm, I'm generally a positive person most of the time, but you know, just like everyone else, I have my, my times of self-doubt and my times of reflection when I find things that I don't like about myself. And I'm very grateful for those moments because that's really the time that I get to take a, a close look at what I can improve and what I can, uh, continue to grow from. Um, for me, there's no growth, that comes from uh, strengths, I, or maybe limited growth that comes from strengths. Much more of my growth comes from not only identifying, but making a commitment to and uh, taking the courageous leap that it takes to face some of our flaws, some of my flaws, you know. And so facing these flaws uh, for me takes a lot of courage, and there's a lot of fear involved, and, uh, you know, it takes a lot of courage and, and, you know, I'm fearful right now sharing this with, with the whole world, um, because this is my inner mind. And, um, you know, I really don't know how people are going to react to hearing it, but it's my truth. And I want to share that because I know that there are other people out there that probably are thinking or feeling the same thing. So anyway, the conversation recently that has been on my own mind has been around, um, the idea of my ability and, um, my, well, not only my ability, but my capacity to help other people, to help support people, as well as my actual action that goes into helping people. And what I've been reflecting on and found to be kind of disturbing to sit with a little bit this week is that I'm not always there to help or support those I love or those that I don't even know, you know, um, what I mean by that is, you know, in the, in the recent, I don't know, a couple weeks or a month. Um, I've had, you know, uh, a recent loss of a friend due to suicide. And uh, I've had a couple other friends in the last couple months tell me that they have been very near uh, to committing suicide. And, you know, I know as a mental health clinician that that's very serious and requires a lot of support. However, sometimes I find myself like, you know, I... I know what I need to do. I know what I should do. I know I should be reaching out um, to help folks, but I guess I'm assuming that uh, other people in their lives that are even closer to them uh, will take on that responsibility. And you know what? I should not assume any of that stuff. I'm sure that you know any effort made by anybody to reach out to people in this state of mind is helpful. So I'm really quite ashamed of um, of my inability to 
really reach out to these people in their time of need or even to recognize that they are in need. Uh, you know, a lot of those close calls with some friends uh, and family members who have been uh, contemplating suicide in the last couple of months, I haven't even, you know, known that they were suicidal until later when they've told me and I feel like I should have recognized the signs, and so I feel quite ashamed, and that's something that I definitely want to fix. I want to improve in, for sure. Um, also, with the shame comes some sadness, too, obviously, because I've I've lost somebody in the last couple months who was a, a dear friend um, to suicide, but also sadness that, you know, that there's not more effort out there to to really reach out and help these people. I think the suicide rate in our country is getting up there to the point where it's becoming very closely equal to some of the most major causes of death in our country, including obesity, car wrecks, drug overdoses, all those things that you hear in the news. And now um, suicide is, is getting up there, especially within the veteran population. And I've worked with a lot of vets in that situation. Um, but yeah, sometimes, you know, I, I just don't know why. And the question I've been left asking myself this week is, you know, why not? Why am I not making myself more available? Why am I not making more of an effort to reach out to other people to help support them? And really, you know, the only thing I could come up with was, um, you know, that I'm in a helping profession on a daily basis. Uh, I'm a therapist seven days a week. Uh, I work five days a week in an addictions clinic and then do my private practice on the weekends. And it's a common thing as a therapist, um, as a term that we use in our field called compassion fatigue, in which when we're constantly working with other people and giving of our own energy to help other people, Sometimes we can feel really fatigued um, emotionally and, and, you know, it's a very emotional job to, to have to sit with people's uh, realities and sit with them when their life's not going well and having them project all the, uh, you know, anger and, and all that stuff on you and having to sit there, you know, um, just because we're, we're able to sit there uh, kind of stoic and, and still provide support and, and foundation, strong foundation, um, it still affects us too, you know. And as a therapist, I know that I take that home sometimes and I find myself having compassion fatigue where I feel like, you know, I've heard so many stories of people's anguish and, and difficulties and um, it gets tough to want to listen to that stuff anymore when you've heard it every single day uh, for work. So I've been trying to be vigilant with my awareness around compassion fatigue and do what I can as far as my self-care practices to try and um, negate that a little bit so that I can remain compassionate in my work, but not just my work. You know, um, when I get compassion fatigue from work, that's when I really start to notice um, my desire to help people in my personal life goes down. And that's really where I can't afford to I can't afford to not be there. I can't afford to not be involved and not be uh, concerned and not express that concern in my personal life because it's those people um, that matter the most to me. You know, the people in my personal life are the people that I want to lose the least, you know, and so why not do more? And so now, you know, I'm, I'm having a very strong desire to give more of myself and my time and practice letting go of my own felt need to do what I want all the time. Um, this has been, you know, pointed out to me by those closest to me that sometimes I can be a little, um, forceful when it comes to, 
doing the things that I want to do or sticking to my schedule and that, uh, you know, I have very little bend or flexibility in my schedule to accommodate other people or to consider other people. And that really, that doesn't sit well with me, you know, um, it's one thing to be good at time management, like I, I feel I am, and schedule things and accomplish a lot of things because of my scheduling. But it's a whole other thing to have other people say, you know, because of your pursuits and, and because you're so successful at what you're doing, um, it's affecting uh, my connection with you and it's affecting my time with you. And that's something that I feel like I need to find better balance with. So I've been really trying to really trying to embrace this phrase and uh, I think it it is uh, reflective of Buddhist ideology or Buddhist philosophy but the phrase goes uh, by benefiting others I also benefit myself and for me you know that's very readily apparent anytime I get outside of myself and go and help somebody through one of their issues I almost always leave the situation feeling better about how I felt about my own situation before going into it. So for sure, uh, by helping someone else through their problem, it gives me a sense of gratification, gives me a sense of accomplishment as well, and also spurs me into action in my own issues too. So, um, you know, sort of like the golden rule, you know, and it's found throughout most religions and Buddhism uh, as well. You know, Buddhism is not a religion, but more of a philosophy, but it's definitely found there that we need to treat others as we treat ourselves, because at our base level of reality, we are each other. I am you, and you are me, and the way I treat you is the way that I feel about myself and the way I'm going to treat myself. Um, you know, it's all connected. So that's been the conversation with my mind recently, and um, really going to try and make an effort in, in the near future to you know, keep my compassion fatigue in check and make sure that I'm there and recognizing the signs and I'm, I'm there to help and support those in my life that are in need. So that's the conversation with my mind today. Today we have a very special guest. Her name is Adrian Eman and she is the creator of the WTF yoga system or the what the fuck yoga system. Uh, she's a creator. She's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu blue belt she spent the last six years in Thailand um, using her um, skill set, not only yoga, but her, her body-centered practices to help a number of professional fighters over in Thailand for the last six years. Um, she and I have very similar interests in the mind and in consciousness and exploring the mind, and that's really why I wanted to have her on. I feel like... Uh, she and I can bounce a, a lot of cool ideas off of each other and try and drive this conversation even further. Um, if you guys want to get a hold of Adrian or check out her WTF yoga system, you can find her at www.wtfempire.com. That's W-T-F-E-M-P-I-R-E.com. And uh, I believe there's a tab on that website for uh, the WTF Yoga System. So check her out and give this a, uh, podcast a listen. It's one of the best ones that we've had so far. We went really deep into consciousness and really got through a lot of cool topics. Hope to have her on in the future. So hope you enjoy the podcast. And uh, please like and support if you find the information useful. Mm -hmm. 
This is the Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. I'm sitting here today with a very special guest, Adrian Eman. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so I, I always start my podcast off with the same question. Um, you might already know it's coming because you've heard the <laughs> podcast. So uh, the question is, you know, the conver- Conversations with the Mind is the name of the podcast, and I just want to get a sense of how that resonates with you and what that phrase means to you. Cause I feel like it means a different thing to everybody, but everybody's little piece of knowledge on that, on that phrase to me is, is sort of like this research project that I'm doing through the podcast. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, ah, uh, so I'm going to backtrack. Like I think it was probably 15 years ago. I did an isolation tank for the first time. And that was one of the most abrupt experiences I've probably ever had in like being alone with my mind and hearing all the chatter mm. and the unnecessary chatter. Like I had to get out of the tank like two or three times to just kind of like break up the insanity. What kind of a tank was it? It was just a sensory deprivation okay. tank. So totally quiet, totally, totally quiet. dark. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Nothing on. How long were you in there? 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Yeah. To sit with your chatter. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was awful. I cried. I got out like two or three times and cried and would get back in and get back out. And it was just really, really difficult to hear what was going on in my own mind. Um, so I guess that's what I think of when I think of conversations with the mind, like one's own ability to sit with what their mind is saying all the time mm-hmm. versus maybe what's coming out of their mouth or what's like being input into their mind mm-hmm. as well. It feels like, or it seems like to me that the mind is always working. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we have techniques and tools to help slow it down or help stop it, hopefully, right. uh, to give ourselves a little break. But for the most part, our default setting is that the mind is just constantly going. Right? Yeah. So that conversation is always going, 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 going. And being a mental health therapist, you know, I, I feel like a lot of mental health these days has to do with people almost like getting too attached to that inner chatter, that conversation, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's the, you know, the depressed person. It's the it's the voice inside the head that's keeping them depressed, you know, telling them that they're worthless, telling them that they're never going to get out of there. That tell, you know, it's the story. 100%. And you and I, you know, we talked in the coffee shop about this, the yeah. stories that you tell yourself and how powerful that is. I feel like that's a, a vast majority of what's underlying a lot of mental illness these days is just the story that people tell themselves inside their mind. Yeah. And redundantly, right? So they're just cycling through just like movement or posture patterns create worse posture patterns. Like thinking the same way creates worse thinking the same way when it's negative chatter, right? Yeah. And positive thinking does the same thing too in a positive light. So uh, repetition in any, you know, physical repetition you know, builds yeah. whatever you're building. Mental repetition, whatever you're repeating over and over is going to dig like that, that deeper groove in your brain. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Just solidify those habits, those patterns. And I feel like a lot of people are scared of that. I know I was scared of that, like being alone with that mm-hmm. and then having to deal with what, what that was about. 
and then having to to fix it right because clearly it wasn't working for me at that point in my time in my life um so in there you had some insights that really like showed you some things you had to change yeah and you had to like face yourself in there yeah yeah it was it was a profound moment for sure um and then the next couple of years, I don't, I definitely didn't get back in and isolate and tank for, I think it was probably two or three years. Scary. Yeah, it was scary. And just, but then when I did, like seeing how it had shifted and then now where I'm at compared to where I was then. But when I work with clients, a lot of them, I have people close their eyes for sensory deprivation, but a lot of them don't, don't want to. And that's, I feel like that's indicative of the state of their nervous system. Mm-hmm. And their, I guess, fear of being alone with what's going to show up. If they're Mm -hmm. scared to close their eyes, like what else, what else kind of lies there? And having to progress through that, you know, and find tools and techniques to embrace the mind that, to embrace the fact that the mind is always thinking and working. That's okay. We don't need to stop it. We just need to not be afraid of it and not let it like drive, be the driving force for all of our reactions. Yeah, it can't be the driver. Yeah. We have to be the driver. It can be like the co-pilot, mm-hmm. right? But but most people, like, they allow their mind or they allow their emotional side or whatever to kind of drive the car. And yeah. then they're left, you know, in the passenger seat just kind of like holding on like, oh, shit, what am I going to do? <laughs> and it's like, well, you need to you need to tap them on the shoulder and be like, hey, remember, I'm in charge here. This is my car. Yeah. Like, get out of the seat, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, you can't let that stuff drive you i i'm so fascinated by that uh deprivation take i've never done it before but um and you talk about like this fear that people have to even go there with simple deprivation and what that reminds me of is um i've done a lot of uh like ketamine assisted journey work ketamine Mm -hmm. assisted therapies things like that um hope to do a dissertation on something like that that'd be nice Uh, yeah that'd be really cool so um Ketamine, what it does is it's a disassociative, so it totally disconnects the mind from the body a little bit. Yeah. And what that does is, without all the physical stimulus um, from the senses, you're finally allowed to not only disconnect the mind from the body, but almost disconnect the mind from this 3D reality that we seem so connected to, yeah. right? And it gives you a little reprieve to be able to look at everything uh, in the cosmos, your whole life history. Uh, the history of the cosmos, everything, how everything fits together, but without this connection to what you think is real, right? Right. And then you come back in with this new understanding and you hopefully go on and, and make some changes, but the sensory deprivation piece is scary for a lot of people because it's the only thing, like the senses are the only thing that keep people grounded and tied to what they think is real. And so right. the thought of losing all sensory sensation well then i might lose all concept of reality and i might never come back yeah right that's the fear how do you how do you get over that i mean that was a scary experience for you but yeah but you kept going back in in that session um i think well the buddha says peace comes from within right and i always go back to that anytime anything upsets me well i have to have a sense of self So I try to separate my sense of self from everything else that happens, you know? So when, when you were talking about that thinking, like, yeah, I detach from the physical, like the ability to touch or talk or smell or hear or see, but my sense of self is still 
so internalized at this point. I know who I am. I know what I stand for. I know how I function in this world. So these things around me mean a lot less mm -hmm. to me because I'm not reliant on them for, for a sense of safety or uh, adequacy or um, accomplishment. Yeah, and I think uh, people will stay attached to things ar around them too just for validation that they exist. Yeah. Right? They yeah. Hey, I exist as a person, and I can feel secure in that, right? But and as soon as you, right, but as soon as you start uh, telling me to disconnect from any connection to who I am, my body and my ego, then yeah. what? What the fuck? Where am I gonna go? Yeah, you know, and um, that's a big, you know, that's a big part of psychedelic journey work too. Is is realizing that you are so much more than what you think you are. You know, you are not yeah. your sensations. With my clients, what I notice the most with this thing is like. So I teach meditation, right? And I'll have clients, brand new clients, um, for the first six months of their meditation training with me, they'll sit and um, I'll notice that, you know, we'll do like a 10 minute meditation and they'll do great. They'll keep their eyes closed, but I'll notice like little twitches in their in their body. They'll be like yeah. tapping their foot the whole time or they'll be like scratching the inside of their finger with their other finger. And in my head, I'm like, you know, I know what they're yeah. doing. They're staying tethered to their physical reality. They're not letting go completely yeah. into that mind space that we want them to with meditation, right? So meditation, formal meditation, you sit completely still, right? A fly could land on you. You're not supposed to engage with that feeling, right? <clears throat> right. Um, but yeah, I noticed my clients, at, at least beginners to meditation, they, they want to stay tethered yep. just a little bit. Yeah, I notice similar stuff. A lot of the work that I do with people is to like slow them down, detach the mind to a degree, and make them operate physically. But some people will just like shake their foot repeatedly or shake their hand. I've had people, especially in breath work, like reach up and grab their forehead with both hands. And then when I tell them later that they did that, they have no like recollection that they do that, you know? And mm -hmm. then, then they start contacting me and being like, I'm grabbing my head all the time. Mm -hmm. Or I'm like tapping my foot all the time. Or I'm like shaking my leg all the time. The moment things get uncomfortable, right? These, right. these distractions that pull us back to this comfortable reality, whether it's comfortable or not, mm -hmm. really. It's just the reality that we know. So do you find with your clients by giving them a little insight into what they're doing already? While you're doing that, what you're doing is you're, you're fine-tuning their attention, right? Yeah. You're, you're telling them, like, hey, pay attention to this a little bit more. Yeah. And as their attention um, goes on that, that thing that they've been doing a little bit more, um, do they notice improvement or do they notice it getting worse? They definitely notice improvement. I haven't had anybody say that it's gotten worse. Mm -hmm. And when I work with them, I just do a lot of distracting them, but distracting them, like I make them count their breath, the length of the inhale and the length of the exhale. So that when they do get distracted and instead of saying, Oh, you're tapping your foot. I'll be like, remember to count the length of the inhale and the length of the exhale. And usually that'll pull them back out of the tap of the foot and mm -hmm. put them like in their brain where their brain is working towards mm -hmm. a task. And then if they're doing like a physical stretch or yoga position in that, then they focus more, the physical body focuses more on this and they tend to let go of the tap. And if they're tapping and if they're counting their breath, then I'll just go into like a lot of direct flex your foot, pull your toes back, drive your heel up, pull your leg in, push your leg out, drop the hip sort of cues that make them be really physically present to what's going on in their body so that they just don't have the capacity to tap the foot mm -hmm. really anymore. Cause there's, yeah, there's no more mental space available. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, 
Yeah, so I think we're right now we're talking about two different types of philosophy to meditation, right? I'm teaching yeah. the seated stillness type mm-hmm. meditation, and this is where I'm noticing people's um, underlying anxieties with the tapping and things like that. You, with, with what you do uh, with your yoga, and I want you to get into that too, but um, you're helping people, instead of disconnect from the senses, you're helping them get really connected to the senses and yeah. what it feels like to be in your body in this space. Um, but to the extent that like you want, you want their perception of their, their physical senses to be like 99% of their perception. So they have very little ability to, to wander and to get into these thought traps, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to see people. And I, I have a very low tolerance for it in classes too. I don't want to see people showing up just to say that they showed up and half-assing it. And if people are distracted so distracted that they can't get through it, then I'll typically just ask them to leave. Or if it's a private session, I'll just say, we're going to do this another day when you're a little bit more collected. Because mm-hmm. otherwise it's just more stressful for them to, to try to be present and listen to my redundant cues while also being sure. zipped off. Um, I haven't been in a yoga studio in a long time, but what are like, what are like, I can't imagine like, what are some of the distractions people have? Do they have like their phone with them on the mat? I've had people do that. I'll kick the phone across the room too. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like you're here to do this. That's like us sitting down and and rolling and trying to do jujitsu while we're holding our phone. I'm texting Shane. (laughs) Don't armbar me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, I don't know. It's interesting what people come in with or like even just getting out of position to drink water. Mm. just those little distractions most of it's mental though most of the people are just really they're so often thought land that the practice is then not so effective because they're not present with it mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, I want to make sure I articulate this correctly but I'll just correct it if I don't um, I'm sure you've seen this like if you don't well in jujitsu if you don't do the technique correct and learn the technique correctly then you have to kind of go back and undo what you've learned and what you've practiced. And that takes twice as long as it takes to learn the technique correctly. Oh, yeah. So if we're working on like thinking a certain way or like counting the breath or moving the body in a certain way to correct a posture dysfunction and they're so distracted that they can't do those things right, then it's ineffective. And I don't want to spend time. I don't want to spend my time or their time having to undo those things simply because distraction was so high that day there's something else that needs attention if if their personal life needs attention they just need to go do that you know and having the permission to do that rather than the stress of like oh well I have to do like this this yoga class or this like private or whatever it turns into I think productivity wise it just goes down I wish people could tune in and listen to that inner conversation that in there's because that inner voice is there too yeah the one that's telling us like Hey, you don't have to go to yoga today yeah. if your wife is yelling at you. Like you should go attend to that, you yeah. know. And people are still forcing themselves to go push, 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 um, ignoring you know even the the good chatter in their head. The yeah. you know the higher self that's trying to tell you like this is what you need to need to do to get back in balance, and you're burning right. the candle both ends. And then you know we hear this other story, maybe from society or, or advertisements or something, saying, "Yeah, you know, you're never going to be a success unless you push until you're dead." Yeah, you if you go to yoga five times a week, then you'll have a calm mind. Right. Well, if you learn what agitates your mind, then you'll have a calm mind. <laughs> like there are tools for that, but but we do live with a lot of like, well, I read that I should, or someone told me that I should. Um, uh, 
And I just want to kind of break that for people too, you know, give mm-hmm. people permission to live how they want and need to live. As a coach, I'm not, I'm not out for people's money. I definitely don't want that. I want their success in whatever their pursuit is. So that's going to be as proactive and productive as possible, not just fucking around, you know? Yeah. I like that philosophy because it mirrors um, one of my favorite things about the Buddha too, that, you know, had he had all these disciples that he's teaching to, right? And then at the end of his teaching, uh, he closed it by saying, you know, don't listen to a word I just said. Like, go out and experience for yourself. And if any of your personal experiences contradict what I said, well, then by all means, trust your experience. Yeah. Don't trust what I said, you know? Yeah. Um, I like that philosophy. Um, yeah. We're, I think we're doing good things. <laughs> there was a guy that did, well, I guess it was a documentary called Kumari. Have you heard of it? it sounds familiar. He, <clears throat> he's from New Jersey, but his family is from India. And so he took like six months and grew his hair out and practiced yoga. And then after six months, pretended to be a guru and tried to get people to follow him. Um, And people did. And the whole time his message to them was, don't listen to a word I'm saying. I'm not who you think I am. Don't do this. And they kept following. And they kept following him. And they would pay to like go to these workshops and travel and be so devoted to him. And then at the end when he told him, half of the group just stopped talking to him, like walked out and wouldn't conversate. And he came out in like his suit. I think he was a banker or something. He came out in his suit and was like, hair was cut, cell phone in his hand. He's like, I, so this is who I really am. Like I told you guys. I told you. And some of them were like, that was the best lesson ever. Wow. But more of them were like, fuck you. Wow. <laughs> we, but I think that's really, that's a profound lesson. Like stop putting your attention in what other people are. And put your attention to who you are. Yeah. Have a sense of self, right? I had an experience like that too in my undergrad at CU Boulder. Um, I took a class called Deviance in U.S. Society. Mm. Um, this is like my rebellious face. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Why do I feel so rebellious? So I took this class, and the very first day, I'm sitting in the front row, this huge lecture hall, like 300 people, and um, we're sitting there, and like the teacher's like five minutes late, and then the teacher's like 10 minutes late for the first class. <laughs> And so we're all like kind of wondering what's going on. And then this really ragged old homeless lady like stumbles in through the doorway uh, at the bottom of the stage and like push, starts pushing this cart across the stage. Um, and everyone's like, what the hell's going on here? Like, get, get this lady out of here, whatever. And then lo and behold, it's our teacher. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so <laughs> she stands up and she's like, oh, hey, I'm your teacher. Um, Take a, she's like, take a snapshot of, of all the judgmental statements that you had in your head uh, when I walked in. And that was just like a huge lesson for me. Like, yeah. it was a huge lesson for all of us that, you know, we all kind of fall into these modes of thinking about people and judging people in a certain way based on how they look or how they smell or whatever. Yeah. And then lo and behold, we don't, we don't know who these people are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really trusting yourself. Rather than putting your trust and faith in, in other people can be a benefit sometime. Yeah. And try not to be on autopilot, you know, and just doing it, which is easy to do because you become the environment that you're surrounded by <laughs> inevitably because it's easier. But making sure that you shake up your environment enough that you like shake up yourself to where you have to question how you behave or how you think or why you would think that way about a certain person or why you would cast that judgment 
mm-hmm. on a certain percent. And judgment, judgment's how we make decisions. So it's not bad because we relate it, but we have to be able to question the judgments that we make and not and that just was her abide point. by them. Yeah. Yeah. Her point was to get us to think and, uh, and start to think about what we judge as deviant behavior in our culture. Yeah. Um, and why we, why we deem it taboo or why we, why we judge it so yeah. badly. And so that was her point. Uh, and we studied all sorts of things in that class, really interesting things from like autoerotic sexual asphyxiation, uh, all the way to like, um, homelessness and, um, underground fight clubs and things like that. Like all sorts of deviant chasing ecstasis, right. States of ecstasis. Yeah. So yeah. it was, it was a really eye opening class and, um, I'm really grateful that for teachers that can think kind of outside the box like that and yeah. get, get you to, th- that's a true master when they can do something without a word. And then after they experience that, it starts, you're, you're questioning your inner, right. Or, and that leads to growth, right? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're confronted with yourself really, mm-hmm. you know, it's not being told to be a different way. You're just projected. Yeah. She didn't say like, Oh, you guys are so judgmental. She yeah. said like, Hey, pay attention to those thoughts. And we were all, I know for me, I was like, holy shit, like, I'm so judgmental of people. Like, I need to do something about this, you know? I think for, like, the next week, I think I gave every homeless person I could, like, food, you know? I'm like, I have no idea who you are. Like, you could be, you know? Yeah, it's good. It's Mm -hmm. good to to be out, out in the world that way. You know, that's, wouldn't that be more of a state of presence Mm -hmm. than just judging them and moving on? But the judgment, I mean, I feel like it still serves a purpose. If we're constantly out there, I mean, being vulnerable is good to an extent. Yeah. But if we're vulnerable too much, we get taken advantage of. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we get hurt by people. Yeah. Not everyone out there is has good intentions. Mm-mm. You know, so. And oftentimes, I think people just do it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. You know, I know, like in the work that I do, because I'm a woman in a male-dominated field, like. The amount of not aggression that I have to have, but like stand up strong in myself that I have to have compared to the vulnerability I'm allowed to have is like 99.9% stand up for myself mm. and 0.1% vulnerability because there's just no space for it. And having to do that and having to be aware of why I do that and why I function that way and educated on it, but then learning how to turn that off in other areas of my life, you know? Um, it just takes consciousness, a lot of awareness. Yeah. So we keep we keep talking about your work and yeah. I haven't even <laughs> but asked nobody you about knows it. what they do. <laughs> right. So why don't you enlighten the folks out there and, and tell them what you're really passionate about and what you do? Um so I work with professional MMA fighters mostly. And I do a collection of things from like breath work to physical yoga practices was my base. I guess it's still yoga, but I'll probably end up just patenting my own system. It's more like restorative yoga, right? Yeah. Yeah, because everything's quite slow Mm -hmm. and quite detailed. I like that about it. Thanks. (laughs) Some of those those yoga flows are like too fast for me. I'm like, whoa, like that's so lost. Especially with martial arts. Like the last thing someone who does martial arts needs is a hot yoga flow class. Really? It's the last thing. Like maybe, maybe if they're in like a week of rest doing that. But you think about how often you like heat your body up and you go out and you get your heart rate really high. Doing a hot yoga class is not going to serve you in restoration at all because your heart rate's going to be high and you're not going to be able to be aware of the posture dysfunctions that are just innate. 
and you're not going to be able to correct them. So it's just going to support posture dysfunctions that you have because there's a lack of awareness. Joe Rogan says he loves the I know, hot yoga. and every time he's telling people to do it, especially MMA people, I just want to, like, my goal <laughs> is to get on the Joe Rogan podcast and, like, talk to him about this thing because mm -hmm. I just want to, like, <laughs> slap him Yeah, I'd like to get on there, too, and talk to him about <laughs> uh, mental training and how important it is. Yeah, because it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Bro science. Some of yeah. the stuff he just throws out there is a lot of bro science. Sure. And I'm like, stop. But bro science is sometimes better than no science. That's true. Right? And it's stuff that gets people thinking differently. Right. And too. gets people moving, you know, yeah. like, like if you, if that gets your ass off the couch to a hot yoga class, like do it. Like yeah. that's better than not doing anything. And that's but. a bit, there's a big access to that. Like we go through things, we work from the most obvious layers of things into the more subtler layers of things. And if he's getting people off of the couch and into hot yoga and talking about restoration, like I think hot yoga is the most obvious or gross aspect of, of yoga because it's so intense. You're so physically uncomfortable. And then eventually people get injured in hot yoga. And really? so they have to back off and they have to go to something else. So then they try like Ashtanga or Vinyasa. And then eventually that even starts to wear on the joints of the shoulders and the hips a bit much. And so then they start to move into more like of a Hatha base. And then Hatha inevitably leads people to yin or restorative yoga. So there's this process of like moving through the layers of how obvious our body is to how subtle it can become, which is great. Do you feel like someone has to start at the beginning? Mm -hmm. And so like for me, I like I've, I've done yoga a few times. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to yoga a few times, <laughs> but I'd love to incorporate it more. Like, can I just skip straight to restorative yeah, yoga? Yeah, 100%. And like not worry about the flow You'll save stuff. yourself a lot. Good. You'll save like, yourself I'm, a lot of injuries. I'm a not lot looking of, to like, get more injured. Nope. And it's, I think the more control that you have over the mind, the easier it is to just walk into a yin, a restorative yoga class or a slower yoga class. If you can be comfortable being mentally uncomfortable or slowing down, then you're fine. If so, you if you can feel comfortable with the mental chatter. Yeah. Because that's what happens when you when you slow down mm -hmm. with the restorative yoga. Like well, but you that's where my that's what happens to me. Like my when I'm holding a pose in the restorative yoga, like my mind starts to wander. And yeah. I, and I let it. It's yeah. relaxing. But the way you were describing it before is like I'm doing it wrong then because I need to be more present with my body in the restorative positions to get the most yeah. presence. So yeah, like mindfulness, I'll just practice mindfulness. My mindfulness in the... But the, and this is why it depends on where people are at too, right? Like it's not so black and white of like, you can't let your mind wander because sometimes that's what it needs. It just needs that space. But when you're training to relax, there's a disassociation that needs to happen, like a conscious disassociate disassociation that needs to happen. And that's why I have people count their breath. So that when they start to get caught up, because when people get caught up in what's going out in the world, they flex their hands or they'll squeeze a glute muscle or they'll shrug a shoulder up or they'll it's lock like a, their jaw. It's like a survival thing. Yeah. Right? Well, like you're prepping for a movement. Yeah. And you're not. You're just like thinking about something that has you stressed out. Yeah. And so you're like shoulders shrugged up to your ear. Now I notice that when I do like my, my mental imagery of jujitsu matches, like beforehand, like... I'll be, I mean, in my imagery and I'll notice like all my muscles are like, my back muscles are just tense and I'll be like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, relax and keep yeah. the imagery going, but you don't have to let, you don't have to do that. Yeah. You don't have to like get into it physically, but it's inevitable. It's like, I've yeah. watched jujitsu and I'm like, me too. Doing that weird shit. You me know? too. Like, no, go this way. Why am I so tired yeah. after watching a UFC on TV? Yeah. I'm so stressed out. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think using tools like counting the length of the inhale and the length of the exhale, it just gives the brain a task, an easy task, one, two, three, whatever. So then the body can relax because the brain is actually occupied. That's what I do for people to help them fall asleep faster. Yeah. Because if you, yeah, most people report, you know, my mind just goes everywhere and I can't fall asleep. Well, give it something to do. Yeah. Like... That's what counting sheep is, you know, yeah. counting the breath. And visualizing this like thing. Yeah. Give your mind a, a task that doesn't mean anything to you personally mm-hmm. and just do it to occupy that um, available. Like I think of it like a computer, like a computer has working RAM. Like you can only have so many tabs open before it crashes. Right. 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 So if you open up a tab in your brain that says 100% of my power is just going to be devoted to counting and there's no room yeah. for anything else. Yeah, and a, the brain being tasked like that, it responds well to a, a problem that it has to solve. You know this with jujitsu. Like when there's a problem that it has to solve, even when people stressed out, like if, if you're fighting with your partner, that problem needs to be solved. Until it's solved, your brain is going to be thinking about how to solve that problem, mm-hmm. right? So if we give it a, a mundane task, it will just think about that. Oh, oh, six comes after five. I forgot about that. I need to restart restart the count mm-hmm. it's not about like having to be on the count all the time just really present in what you're doing so that you can so that your body just doesn't react to stress that you're imagining right i'm sure that helps too with the restorative piece because uh, i tried a couple of your your online classes and what i found myself doing was like i'd be in a pose just trying to hold the pose and relax as much as possible into it. Cause I could feel like as I'm holding a pose, like, Oh man, I'm, I'm flexing like my hip flexor in this position and I shouldn't be, I should yeah. be relaxed. And so I'd like have to actively like breathe out and relax that part. Yeah. And then it'd be like, Oh, I noticed something else and I'll re- breathe and relax that part. Um, but yeah, I still noticed that, uh, you know, I'm, 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 you know, the more I think about like a part of my body, the more, um, tense it gets so the counting during the yoga i think would help my mind to disconnect a little bit from thinking about what i'm trying to do yeah because and people go in and they're like oh i need to loosen up my hips so i'm going to go as deep into this stretch as hard as i can in this hip flexor typically that's not actually what we need to do especially if the body's injured or sore we need to like back it out just a little bit so the counting keeps people from like grinding in Mm -hmm. to a position so it becomes less about the position and more about like the headspace of being in the position and just the awareness of like how hard we push into things or how, how much we think about one thing and how that starts to activate, like the shoulder shrugging up towards the ear. And then we're like, oh, I do that. And then the more that we realize that we do that, the more that we start to repattern or at least see that that's unproductive. And then eventually we start to catch it quicker or let go of the habit. Right. So all of that awareness is really effective. And when you're just counting, then you can, it like opens up, I wish I had better language for it, but it's like having that count opens up this window of opportunity for people to see what's actually going on physically and not what they think or intend to be going on physically. Mm-hmm. They might go in with hip flexor pain and then get in there and realize that it's actually their low back that's sore. And if they do like this minor adjustment, then the hip flexor goes away and it targets the back and then everything's better. Mm-hmm. But if they go in and they're like, I'm going to stretch the fuck out of my hip flexor. It's their tunnel visioned in on that. 
Mm-hmm. And then there's no space or opportunity to see what's actually going on because the body's just a chain of reactions that's happening. So why do why do people? I guess I'm gonna be blunt. Why do people waste their time with the hot yoga and waste their time with these other levels when the res- they could just you know go to this restorative and not cause themselves injury? Like my, the whole reason why I want to do yoga in the first place is to prevent as many injuries as I was getting on the mat, you know, and to help my body recover better. Yeah. That's the whole reason why I looked into it. Uh, maybe that's why I found restorative to be better for me. Yeah. Um, others, I guess, are looking for fitness, and maybe that's why they go to yoga for that. But to me, yoga isn't equatable with fitness. To me, yoga is like a rebalancing practice yeah. or a meditative practice. Am, yeah. I, am I in the correct way of thinking about this? I would say that you and I are aligned in that way of thinking about it. I don't like to be referred to as a yoga teacher because I don't like to be attached to that, the idea that yoga is a fitness mm-hmm. thing because I don't think it is. We have fitness things. We have cardio. We have weights. We have jujitsu. We have, we have things that are fitness what do we have that is not fitness? Like what, where is the space in between the balance? napping yeah. and rolling really hard, right? And I think that's where yoga can be really productive. But people are used to the grind. And I think that probably stems to deeper levels of people's belief systems on how, how things have to be hard or it has to be painful to gain or other people are grinding, so I have to grind. I can't take a day off because my tribe's not taking a day off. I think that comes down to like having a sense of self and being able to determine, oh yeah, like slowing down would probably be best for me. But everybody I know and Joe Rogan says, <laughs> go to hot yoga. So they do that because these are people that they admire too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not enough information out there for people about why they should slow down and how, like what I do is quite unique but convincing people what I do and how it's effective takes so much fucking work that it's ridiculous. Does it take more convincing here in the U.S. than overseas? Like no, less. Yeah, that's I would what. Say. Less convincing for Americans. Less convincing for Americans. Really. But that said, since I've been back, I haven't been working as intensely with men as I was in Thailand. Like I would say that ninety-seven percent of who I worked with in Thailand was men and getting them to like break out of their bro culture and think like no it's all right just to lay on the ground for 20 minutes it took a while to get that momentum going Mm -hmm. and then then they would start coming to my yoga classes and then it started being called nap time and then they were dedicated to it because they were like oh like i might i fall asleep most of them would fall asleep because they'd become so relaxed and that's what they needed at the Mm -hmm. time um but it took fuck probably nine months of no, guys, don't just go get a massage. Like, let's do something more productive, more proactive mm-hmm. to actually have you engaged in your recovery rather than going to a massage or smoking pot or um, sitting in the sauna ice bath. All of those things are productive, but if you're not mentally engaged in your recovery, then your recovery is going to slow down a lot. If people want to fight for longer periods of time, if people want to have less injuries, they need to they need to be engaged in their recovery practice, right? Is this the difference between like active recovery versus passive recovery? So I don't, that's a really good question. Yeah, because when, when I usually hear about active recovery, it's like um, movement type drills that mm-hmm. help your body gain flexibility and, yeah. and get blood flow and lactic acid moving out. And so that's what we commonly think of as active recovery. But 
the way you describe it too, like keeping your mind active in the recovery process, I think that could also be considered active recovery yeah. versus like a passive mental recovery would just be like smoking some pot and zoning out, um, yeah. laying in bed, you know, which I'm guilty of every single night. Yep, same. I love it. Same. <laughs> I'm know, into it. Passive recovery is great, um, but I, I like it. I got to have both. You know, you gotta yeah. Have both. And there's got to be something in between. Like there's got, there just has to be this hub in between where we're actually improving our mental awareness around holes in our game as well as improving the way that our body functions. Mm-hmm. And high-level athletes will listen to me. Lower-level athletes are just like, no, I just need to grind more. You know, like it's, it becomes very obvious like who I'll work with and who I won't work with by their reaction mm-hmm. to when I talk to them about like how to address issues or how to fix things. Have you ever been to India? I haven't. Yeah, I wonder how, because um, I've never been to India either, but I think that's, Am I right? That's the birthplace of yoga? Yeah. Right? So I wonder how they think about yoga in the sense, because they have all the different styles of yoga mm-hmm. in India. I'm sure they have restorative yoga too. Um, but, and this is just my ignorance, but I can't imagine that um, the majority of yoga practitioners in India, the birthplace, most of them are probably not doing restorative. Most of them are probably doing like vinyasa or like some other yeah. spiritual uh well, I guess, to me, recovery yoga is not necessarily for spiritual purposes. It could probably help with that. Right. But there are more focused uh, yoga practices for the spiritual path. Yeah. Am I right in that? Yeah. And so that, that when I imagine India, I imagine them most of them doing those types of yoga rather than restorative. And I, so there was, I remember reading a book or an article about how India brought yoga, like vinyasa style yoga, Bikram style yoga, to America, to the West, as a business venture. Brilliant. Like the amount of money that ashrams make now off of Westerners that think they need to go to to India to learn yoga. It's the eat, pray, love thing. Yeah, it, exactly. It <laughs> is movie an eat, pray, love thing. Yeah. It, oh, there. man. And how that movie destroyed Bali is just insane. Yeah. Um, but I think people are more more attached to what yoga is from what they know in the West. There, like the largest yoga festival in the world is in India, as it should be. But it's shit like the guy that's held his arm over his head for 30 years to prove that it's mind over matter. Now his arm's frozen in place over his head and people go to see that. Or the guy that like ties his dick around a stick and then tucks the stick back between his legs. I've seen that and he pulls shit with it. Yeah, and he pulls shit with it to prove again that it's mind over matter. That's yoga, right, is the mind over matter aspect, not the physical practice. So anything can be considered yoga. Yeah, it's definitely more of a philosophy. Mm-hmm. Maybe I wouldn't deem it a religion, but more of a philosophy on how you live. Like everything is everything. Everything's sacred or everything's not sacred. Like you can't create division and this is what it needs to look mm-hmm. like versus this. You know, so Bikram yoga, I think, is like the worst kind of yoga for anybody to ever do in the world. But it's not necessarily bad because it gets people introduced to their bodies more. Yin yoga, I think, is the best, but it's not necessarily the best for everyone. Like if you were to take someone who had a lot of mental health issues and say, hold this position in the silent room for 10 minutes, they'd probably go fucking crazy. Therefore, Bikram would be better for them at that point, right? Like we can adapt it and we can utilize all these different types of yoga 
but people are really attached to this eat, pray, love, like sparkle idea of mm-hmm. what enlightenment looks like. That shit's not, that, that shit's not easy. <laughs> like you can't, your life isn't going to sparkle until you've been through a lot of really nasty shit and dealt with it. Doesn't just come out pretty. Right. Yeah. Diamond isn't created from pretty shit. No, no. It's created <laughs> from all the nasty stuff that's, Yeah. You gotta sit with that shit for a long time before yeah. it becomes a diamond. Yep. <laughs> Let it just mm-hmm. like fester, mm-hmm. fester until it doesn't fester anymore. Mm-hmm. So, your brand of yoga is called WTF Yoga. Yeah. And I, you're, I like your sweatshirt. Thanks. The WTF. I just <laughs> like uh, the the logo looks similar to uh, an old um, skateboarding um, brand that I used to wear uh, oh. called Fallen. Uh, like fallen shoes or yeah. something. Have that, some, something similar. I'm going to have but, to look that up. But um, so obviously in our culture, WTF means what the fuck, right? Yeah. Is that what WTF means? Yes. And so yes. so what is your particular brand of, what is WTF yoga? So when I was first wanting to do subscription-based, like a subscription-based site, mm-hmm. um, I had two business partners at the beginning. And we were just sitting around thinking about what we would call this subscription-based site. And I just have so many problems with the yoga world. And I was just thinking like, what the fuck are they talking about here? And what the fuck are they doing here? And why the fuck do they act like that? And how the fuck do they go about this? But that was just the redundant phrase is what the fuck, why the fuck, where the fuck, when the fuck? Like, why, why is this happening? And then jokingly, one of them was like, oh, just call it WTF. And then there's some place in town called WTF Marketing, right? And they, I think they knew that guy. And I was like, mm, yes, <laughs> that's, that's great. Like, I always want people to ask the questions of what, when, where, why, how. And just adding the fuck on it just, like, makes me not like the typical mm-hmm. namaste yoga teachers. And, are... it, and it makes people not take it as seriously. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'd hope so. Yeah. Like, <laughs> lighten so. up a little bit about it. I've had practice. people get real upset that I, I attach that to the word yoga and my kickback is just like, well, then do you really know what yoga means? Because in yoga, there's not division, you know, it's not black and white. It's not evil versus good. It's not hate versus kindness. Like there's no division. It's all one. So you getting upset is just your own trigger of like self projection that you'd like to throw at me because you're uncomfortable with maybe just the question. Yeah. When people come up and from the yoga world and, and say that stuff to you, you should just say, namaste, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> namaste, bro. <laughs> yeah. It does like you need to go back and do another class. Yeah. Go, go figure out what it yeah. really means. Why are you so focused on what I'm doing, bro? Yeah. Why are you so focused on my life? I'm just doing me. Just doing yeah. me. I'm living my best life over you here. You must be what? a beginner at this <laughs> yoga thing, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting. And I do like some of that. Well, I like to stir things up, you know, I like to... I like to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable, but in a space that's also like safe, right? right? Safe space. That's what I do too in yeah. therapy. You know, I create a safe space and then I push people outside of their mental comfort zone, you know, yeah. but that's where the healing happens, you know? Yeah. It doesn't happen in your comfort zone. There's no Definitely. growth. There's no growth happening in your comfort zone. No. And that goes with anything, any physical endeavor, any mental endeavor, any relationship, any whatever. Yeah. You have to be out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Because that's where you have to, like, you have to think differently for survival purposes. You have to purposes. adapt. You have to, you have to grow. And see who you are. Mm-hmm. I remember one of, like, the the biggest lessons that I had in jujitsu was this chick. She was on so many steroids. 
too, but she just, it was pretty early on into me being a white belt. She kept arm barring me and slamming an arm bar onto me so hard. And it was pissing me off because you, you just don't have to slam it in. She did it like four times and finally I like walked off and then was like, I'm fucking done and threw a tantrum. And then my coach like came up and he's like, let's roll. And he kept arm barring me the same arm bar, but not slamming it on. And then at the end of the roll, he was like, do you see, like, you keep giving up that arm. So I'm going to arm bar it. And so is everybody else who knows how to arm bar it because you keep putting it in the position to arm bar. And I was like, oh, I get it. You know, my, he's like, yeah, you're uncomfortable. This sucks. You know, trying to teach you how to learn yeah. from your mistake. And then he says to me, he's like, and I never want to see you throw another fucking tantrum again. And I was like, mm. ooh. Yeah, there's a real lesson. <laughs> there's a real lesson. I broke my soul too. I went home and I cried. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I just throw tantrums in my life when things don't go my way. I just get so upset when other people hurt me or when something happens. But the lesson was so obvious of like, I'm partaking. I'm doing that. It made me so uncomfortable. And then there were like months of work on just that. Like not reacting out of fear. Jiu-jitsu has been the biggest mind fuck for me out of almost anything in my entire life. And I've I've looked I've read about quantum physics. I've learned you know yeah. I've learned about all these <laughs> crazy things that people you know think are crazy. But jujitsu pushes my mind in different ways that I, I can't I can't even can't even comprehend. Yeah. Like um I everybody in the beginning is frustrated. And it's, it's frustration at yourself. It's frustration at your ego. It's like, how could I be so helpless? How could I be so gassed? How could I be so weak? You yeah. know, um, I was actually, actually sitting on the sideline tonight to, today with Z after, um, we'd been rolling a while in open mat and we were both watching your match with someone, uh, one of the, one of the guys there. And <clears throat> I turned to Z and I'm like, that must be a really interesting experience um, because you were just whooping up on this guy, right? <laughs> and so I turned to see, I was like, that must be a really interesting experience as a man to just be completely dominated and controlled by a woman. Um, because that's personally never happened to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I wasn't training with high-level girls in my jiu-jitsu right. beginning, right? Um, so I was never dominated, but... We were both watching that, and he's the same, you know, never dominated. He's huge. Right. Right? No, no woman could dominate that guy, <laughs> right? And so we're, we're watching this, and we're like, um, you know, that the mental battle that he was going through at the time, right? Yeah. Not only dealing with the problem at hand, right. which is the immediate threat, um, but also dealing with the ego part, saying, like, yeah. this should not be happening to me right now. This it's an impossible scenario, you know, and um, jujitsu does that for all of us. Like it yeah. puts us in those situations where we have to fight or quit. Yep. Fight or quit. Fight or quit. Fight or quit. And it really tests you. That's why a lot of people don't come back because they learn that about themselves that they're quitters. That when things get tough, they quit. When yep. things get tough, they don't come back, you know. But for us, we've learned that. When things get tough, that's when we get interested. That's when right. we get, we're oh, like, I want to fix that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so like you get armbarred over and over and over and you go home and cry, but I bet you went into that gym. Wa- I haven't been armbarred like that ever again. Right, you're like, you're like <laughs> I want to fix this issue, yeah. you know, whereas most people would have that experience and be like, 
I don't ever want to be that embarrassed again. I don't ever want to feel that helpless again. I'm never going back. Yeah. I don't want to be pushed outside my comfort zone. And you and me are more like growth mindset. Like we force ourselves out of our comfort zone because we know the benefit. And we then become more adaptable to the world because less things control us, right? Like less discomforts or less um, ass whoopings control us. Now we can just laugh when when the ass whooping is happening, you know, mm-hmm. but it took, it took tears and it took brutal, brutal sessions of jujitsu to go through that and still does. Mm-hmm. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't go away and being driven to go back. That is when I'm interested mm-hmm. when I'm like on the floor beaten in whatever way. And it is super brutal. Yeah. And I don't want any of the listeners out there that don't do jujitsu who have maybe thought about it. Like when we say brutal, we don't mean like people are getting injured and stuff all over the bar. Like that's the nice thing about jujitsu is we can roll hard, we can mm-hmm. spar hard with each other, but the risk for inner injury is pretty low. Right. Um, so we can we can when we say brutal, we mean mentally brutal. It's yeah. physically exhausting. exhausting. Um, and yeah, but you're not getting hurt. You know? No, and I mean even if you do get hurt though, you can get hurt doing anything. You can get hurt riding your bike or playing on the playground. Or doing or, yoga. Or doing yoga. I know more people that have gotten hurt doing yoga than I care to ever, ever even admit. It's like a common yoga injury. I ha- torn hamstrings. Oh. Yeah. Or herniated discs. I have torn my groin um, oh. muscles by doing those, um, those machines that you do mm. the splits and crank on. Yeah. My old taekwondo instructor used to crank those God. and I tore, I've torn my oh. groin muscles. So awful. Yeah. That it's is the worst. so awful. Yeah, I'm so sorry you went through that. So, torn hamstrings. Torn hamstrings and herniated discs. Really? Yep. Because flexibility is the goal. Yeah, Yeah. sorry. Not, that's okay. No, (laughs) you're right though. Like, um, the posture, but then the flexibility in the posture is the goal. Not, like, the information in the posture being the goal. Mm -hmm. The accomplishment is the goal. The ego. I like, um... Yeah, the flexibility while in the posture. Yeah. Right? And uh, Kelly and I go see a strength and conditioning coach twice a week uh, who has knowledge of jiu-jitsu also. So that's why we go to him. Yeah. And um, I really tell him all the time, and he's really good at uh, incorporating this in, but giving us um, functional strength in weird positions, right? That would right. be, you know, to the average everyday person, you're not going to spend much time on your back upside down and be right. and have to exert force, but right. But for someone in jujitsu like myself who likes inverted guard, yeah, um, I need to be able to generate power by pushing off of my neck upside down, you know, right. with someone's weight on top of me. And he incorporates like, let's teach your body how to generate power from these weird positions that are functional to you. And um, I really love that about. Yeah, that's great because yeah. you do need that weird sort of strength and weird sort of flexibility for jujitsu. Right. It's important. Yeah, because like a bench press is not going to help me much. Nope. <laughs> no. No, that's what makes strength and conditioning for jujitsu so interesting. Mm-hmm. I hope this is about oh. follower. No, yeah. it's all good. Let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Um, so yeah, I want to ask you more about um, what it was like to live and work in Thailand too. Callie and I just got back from our honeymoon there. I'd been there once before, but never more for more than like 10 12 days um yeah what's that like to to like go over there and live there how long were you there six years on and off wow six and a half yeah it was a lot um 
it's really different to go live in a Buddhist culture and how that plays, like the karma card becomes the biggest thing. You know, everything's done because of karma, which is different than more of uh, how, I guess, America works, right? Or most Western cultures works, Puritanism. So there's not a lot of foresight in, in how things go, and that was really good for me, but it was really hard for me to, to learn to let go of a schedule and regiment and knowing exactly what was going to happen. And that probably happened the first, like the first, oh, the first couple of years were brutal. The first year I was there was like a lot of getting adjusted to the culture and how it was. And then the second year my mom died. So then I was over in this culture, sans my mom. And she wasn't living over there with me. She was back here in Colorado, but um, having to deal with like her dying and then adapting, still adapting to this other culture and a lot of like the differences that this culture has compared to America was a lot. Best thing I ever did was go live in Asia though. It broke me of a lot of the schedules or ideal ideologies that I feel like I had in America. Mm -hmm. A lot of the whole, it has to look this way. Yeah. Sort of thing. Sort of perfectionistic mindsets, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. Yeah, being a Buddhist, um, whenever I go over to Asian countries, I feel home, mm. you know? Um, I feel like my ideology, my way of thinking in general these days, it wasn't always like this, you know? In my teens and 20s, I was very rebellious, almost like anti-human, you know? Yeah. Like, I wanted the whole world to burn. Right. Um, <laughs> and that was probably because of my... Uh, my introduction and then discontent with western religions um yep they probably stirred some of that but i found buddhism and became a buddhist and went over to thailand and all of a sudden i feel home you know because people aren't necessarily like stepping over each other to try and get a leg up right yeah, instead it's like hey i have some food and you don't have any here's a handout let me let me let me yeah. feed you um there's no homeless people in Thailand, you know, almost everybody's no. taking care yeah. of. Like, if people see someone on the street begging, you know, someone will take them in and like get them the resources yeah. they need. It's a communal feeling. It's a feeling of I'm going to take care of my neighbor, or even I'm going to get to know my neighbor. You know, yeah. here in America, like honestly, like I've met my neighbors a couple times and yeah. we share walls with them, but I have never shared a meal with my neighbors. So uh, crazy different. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so when I'm in Asia, I feel like this is where I belong. You know, yeah. this is, these are the type of people that share the mindset and the ideals and values that I do. Right. And then I'll fly and land in LA and I'll be like, oh God. Oh God. Yeah. This, I'm just like getting into, into some slime here. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's very different. Uh, the hardest thing about coming back has been the fact that you can't just like stop by somebody's house here in America. And we live in a pretty communal town, but communities more determined by going to the same farms or getting your food getting your food from the same farms or like going to the same like breweries or going mm -hmm. on bike rides together not like just pop over whenever and if I'm busy then I'll tell you I'm busy or if I'm not busy then I'll invite you in and things don't have to look perfect mm -hmm. we don't really like we operate on things having to be very scheduled and very perfect mm -hmm. which is rough yeah, I think I really like what you're saying about like the community of of uplifting. Yeah, just it's a it's a whole society that's not so focused on self. 
Yeah. You know, we're so focused on ourselves here in this culture. Yeah. You know, our ego runs most of our day. Yeah. And over there, it seems almost like, uh, you know, their ego is the last thought. That other people yeah. is the first thought. Am yeah. I, yeah. I would... Mm, I mean, everyone's still trying to survive. But it's not stepping on people, you know, and people are happy to lift each other up mm-hmm. more than, like, trample over each other yeah. to survive, I think. We need more of that over here. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. So stick around. All right, folks, st- thanks for sticking with us. We're back with Adrian. Um, so talking more about um, Thailand and your experience over there, um, <clears throat> again, I've only been in there, been over there for short little bursts, so I didn't get... I feel like enough time to soak in the information that I wanted around Thai training culture, um, yeah. Muay Thai training culture. Um, I see it a lot in movies and videos and things. I think the movie Kickboxer with Jean-Claude Van Damme, the yeah. original one, yeah. that back in the day was one of the, the movies that got me interested in the martial arts. Um, and I didn't even know that he was doing Muay Thai back then. I just really liked the style of training, like out in the jungle, the the weird stuff like hitting the shins with the you know all these things the banana trees yeah right so um that's what really got me into it and uh, i didn't get to see much of the training while i was over there but you have been working for years with muay thai fighters over in thailand and i want to know your opinion um not only the difference between american style training versus thai training but really if you could enlighten us all a little bit about the thai philosophy of training i know that they Muay Thai is like a, it's a national sport, so yeah. almost every, I mean everybody in the country knows what it is, uh, whereas like everybody in the country doesn't know what combat sports is over here. Right. You know. Right. So what's what's that like? Um, Muay Thai is really interesting. So I I only worked with Muay Thai people specifically Westerners because okay. in the Muay Thai culture and in Thai culture, you just do these certain things. You don't do like there's no flexibility work besides like the, your trainer stretching you out. Uh, post-fight or pre-fight. Um, and it's a very male-dominated culture. So a, a woman coming in and then like saying what they should do to improve Muay Thai. Well, I'm a Westerner, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know Muay Thai. It's not in my blood. It's not. I haven't been training it for three years. So I mostly worked with Westerners when I did work with them. But it was, it's an interesting philosophy, you know, like a couple days before I moved back, I was driving home on my scooter and you run five to seven kilometers a day when you do Muay Thai, especially if you're going to be fighting. And that's a must. Sometimes it's twice a day if you're like three weeks pre-fight. But there was a guy like riding, a trainer riding behind probably a three-year-old as the three-year-old is running this like five to seven K loop. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just what they do. Yep. Three years old, it just they start doing it. Sometimes it's to make money for the families, or sometimes it's because the dad owns the gym, or there are a variety of reasons for it. But it is very much in their blood, uh, and it is a very brutal sport. Yeah, we saw uh, the first time I went to Thailand. I we went to the old Lumpini Stadium. Yeah. in the middle of Bangkok, and uh, we saw it looked. They may have been older, but they look like four or five year olds, like fighting in there. And a couple of them got carried out on stretchers. Yeah. Because there's no pads. There's no, nope. hey, this is the kids' league. We're going to go easy, you know, like we do here in America. I, my Taekwondo tournaments when I was a kid, it was like, we're full padded up, you know, and yeah. like 
points barring where these kids are not padded you know they have their gloves but they're throwing elbows and knees just like the adults are yep. leaving on stretchers you know and I love that because I'm all about uh, warrior culture being really deeply ingrained in a culture in general and yeah. something that we're missing here in the US but I really love that about uh, Thailand and a lot of people like my brother was sitting next to me and um, he didn't like that you know, yeah, he didn't like seeing little kids um, leaving bloody and, and beaten up. Our our tour guide over there, she wouldn't even go in the stadium with us. She's like, no, I can't, I can't watch these little kids yeah. do that. You know, I think there there are two sides to it. Well, so many sides to it. Like there's anything, but there's a side where it makes money for families. But you think about like little kids at the age of seven, getting caught with the elbow to the head and getting a concussion. And we're lucky to have a lot of sports science over here. There's not a lot of sports science that goes into Muay Thai. It's probably improving right now, but still, like, it's not sports science-based. So the damages that are happening to these little kids are really, they're really aggressive. You know, knees and elbows, <laughs> it's brutal, especially elbows. Mm -hmm. I think you can go 12 to 6 with an elbow. You're just never allowed to throw elbows in sparring ever mm. which is good mm -hmm. they're pretty pretty harsh about that but training sessions are two and a half hours two times a day so five hours a day mm -hmm. if Outside, you're a fighter if you're a fighter and there's no like recreational muay thai over there right there is a little bit like they've adapted for tourists okay because i was going to say like over here in the in the states like every almost everybody who practices martial arts is a recreational martial artist mm -hmm. um it's the yeah. it's like the top five percent or whatever that are competitors and then the top one percent of that that are world champions yeah whereas in thailand like i don't see any um family muay thai gyms you know they're all hardcore you know fighter gyms yeah it's true like they they breed fighters mm -hmm. you know and and they're proud about that yeah and they should be because it takes a lot of work and muay thai is a really beautiful sport like it has its progression through the rounds it's not just about brutality um it is about like the first round you spend teep, jab, teep, jab, jab, teep, teep. Just feeling your partner out and seeing where it is. And then the second round you kind of pick up a little bit more of that. And I think most MMA fights are kind of similar to that. But there's a lot of like sanctity in Muay Thai. You would never, well one of like the ways to beat a Thai person mentally is once you knock them down from a clench is to walk up and then stand over them. Because it's really, well, you would just never do that for Asian culture purposes. Like disrespectful. Face, it's really disrespectful. Yeah, even uh, eye contact in, in yeah. those cultures. Yeah. yeah. So you wouldn't, but when you do that, it defeats your opponent. So, but ties won't typically do that to each other, you know? They, they stay within those bounds of respect. Westerners are more likely to do that. Is there anything wrong with that? Like, do you think a Westerner should abide by the, the cultural rules, or do you think mm. that they should take the advantage that they have by just looking, I I giving them a look? I think the sport grows by taking advantages yeah. that you have. And, uh, yeah, I think I think that it's all right to do that. Within your culture, within their culture, probably not okay. No. You know, they leave room for us to do it, but... Yeah. I think maybe if there's, like, an international Muay Thai association. yeah. Totally allow it in there where you have people competing in it from all over the world. Yeah. But, you know, within Lupini Stadium in Thailand, you know, you're not going to see it. Yeah. yeah. And you see some of the, like, most well-known Muay Thai fighters in Thailand, like Bukau. 
he, he, I don't think he's, I've seen him ever do that. You know, he's precise and he's brutal, but he's respectful mm-hmm. as well. And that's almost scarier. <laughs> yeah, because then you don't know when it's coming, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't mm-hmm. know what to expect. Thais are like that. The culture is very good at that. Everything is so smiley. And Muay Thai is similar. It looks pretty, it looks pretty, it looks pretty. And then it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. I have a very good friend of mine fights um, Muay Thai. And he's out of like a little family Muay Thai gym. Like family run. It's small. There's not a lot of Westerners that go there. So he trains with the Thais. Spends um, a lot of time with them and their families. And then fights Thais. Which is most Westerners will get paired up against each other. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to like see the difference in Thai style training versus like what they do, how they meet Westerners standards. Yeah, so that's sort of what I'm interested in too, is like um, the training philosophy, the philosophy behind their training, like um, running twice a day, training yeah. five hours a day. You know, what are some of the other um, things that you noticed in your time over there that are different than than how we do it over here in the U.S.? I think there's just a lot of like brutality in it. You know, beating out any weakness. Mm-hmm. Running running 14K a day in the heat. Midday. I mean, the first one might be... Because training sessions are like from 8 to 10 or 10.30. And then from like 4 to 6.30. So later in the day, like they're just hot. Just hot times of day. Um, but you just push through that. And you just keep pushing through that. And And it's expected... It's expected to push. Like if there's any complaining or any sort it's of not tolerated. hint of uh, anguish on your face or anything, yeah. what do they do? They, it's just not tolerated. If you throw a tantrum, they'll either like put you in your place in sparring or they'll just all stop talking to you. Mm. Like, um, because of the saving face thing, you're not really allowed to have emotional tantrums because you don't want to make yourself look bad, but you also don't want to make your coach look bad. And that's, that's important to respect. Mm-hmm. I did not, I did Muay Thai for three months and I did not respect the culture. The yeah. culture did not respect me. So it was like from doing it as, from my standpoint, I don't know if I'll ever go back to it because it was too, too emotionally abusive, I guess. Over there it was. Yeah. Would yeah, you do over it over here? Um, man, the scars run pretty deep from doing it over there. If you just had the right type of coach who could reach yeah. you in the right way yeah. that wasn't uh, up in your face type of yeah, training. I'd have to get over some serious. Some Maybe serious if he was thing. a Mr. Miyagi yeah. type, you know, really soft. <laughs> I'll <and> like... take <laughs> that. <laughs> kind, quiet. Yes. Yeah, because it is. You just have to expect a lot of brutality. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I'm thinking like people who come into our gym, you know, in the first week, the, you know, they take their licks just like everyone else does, mm-hmm. and. Oftentimes they'll leave the mat uh, and just like be down on themselves and I'll see our coach leave the mat and like go talk to them and be like, hey, this is normal. Like, don't worry. This is how this is how the team gets to know you. You know, this is a sign that they like you, that yeah. they're doing this to you, you know, and yeah. he coaches them back onto the mat, you know. Yeah. But I don't think that happens in Thailand. Like if you're if you're sla- if you're slacking or temper tantrum or up in your mind too much about it, um, they're just going to be like, dude, pull your shit together. Yeah, figure it out. Come back. Which is interesting because that's not really a Buddhist compassionate approach in a Buddhist yeah. country. So it's almost like the Buddhism part of their culture gets switched off a little bit Yeah. when it comes to Muay Thai. 
That's interesting. It's interesting. It, it was all very interesting and confusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm still integrating like quite a bit of it. I don't know. They're like for women when women fight my fight Muay Thai, they're not allowed to step over the ropes in the ring. They have to like go all the way to the ground because you bleed. You have a period. So if you if you have a period and you bleed and you go over the ropes, then there's a belief that you're going to be more likely to bleed and lose while inside the ring. And there are little things like that that are just really, I don't know, it's just really interesting. Mm-hmm. Muay Thai was hard for me. Like, to even work with some of the Western Muay Thai people, because the the training for Muay Thai is so strict, there's not much room for injury prevention, you know. No, not even really lifting weights. Most of the Muay Thai fighters don't lift weights. Because you've got to be really flexible and really mobile, and they drill in, like, how to knee correctly. One of the things that I didn't learn too much about, only a little bit at one point, was how some of the the moves are named. And I remember a Thai woman telling me that, like, a knee, like, the name that they have for it is something akin to, like, an elephant tusk piercing the body. And that's how they describe throwing a knee, you know, but it has this sacred name. And most of the, if I remember correctly, most of the names are then attributed to nature. So what Muay Thai is now compared to what Muay Thai started out as, obviously, like it's lost some of probably the respect or the sanctity. Hmm. That's interesting. What about the culture between fighters in a gym? Like, uh, do they get along with each other or are they, okay, because, um, there was a Joe Rogan podcast with Yoel, Yoel Romero on it. I don't know if you heard that one, but he's a wrestler from Cuba. Yeah. And he was talking about, um, like, wrestling in Cuba is a lot like Muay Thai in Thailand. Like, if you're an athlete, you're doing wrestling. Like, that's your way out. That's your ticket out. That's right. your ticket for your family to make your money. Um, and he said that even among the same team, you're always fighting for the top spot. So, like... Today, in wrestling practice, if you don't beat all the rest of your team, then you only get two meals a day. Whereas if wow. you come out on top, then you get a third meal and you get a room with uh, air conditioning in Cuba, right? Wow. Everyone else yeah. has to sleep in a hot room. Um, so it, so I'm, obviously, it sounds like the Thai culture is, is much different than Cuba yeah. um, in that sense. And, and that just fascinates me. Um, so maybe you could talk about that a little bit. I think there's not... Like, you don't really get demeaned. You know, if you don't, you don't get demeaned by your teammates. Everybody's really supportive of everybody else. It's definitely a family. You do typically just go to one coach. Like you have one coach, even though there might be 11 coaches teaching in a gym, you have this coach that you work with. And is that coach assigned or? I think they kind of choose. Like what's going to be the best fit for your personality. And they're really good at it. They're really good at that. And when a coach dedicates, I mean, like you see in jujitsu, when a coach dedicates, they dedicate and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So there are similarities with that, and they'll spend a lot of time with you, you know. And if, like my friend Kieran, who fights Muay Thai and trains at the smaller gym, like he, he's part of that family now. Like he hangs out with that family. They go and they eat dinner at the gym together, or they go out for beers after his fights. And his coach is very devoted to him being successful. It's also extremely like lighthearted to a degree as well, you know. He was telling me. I don't know if he'll care or not that I tell this story. Fuck it. He was telling me how in his last fight, like, they trained, he trained thinking that this guy was Southpaw. 
So they trained his whole fight prep was because his opponent was Southpaw. And then his opponent came out and his, it was not Southpaw. And the second round, his coach was like, oops, oops. not Southpaw. <laughs> but it's not taken as seriously, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't upset. He was just like, oh, now we adapt. Mm-hmm. Because you train to adapt, right? And the coach was just like, oh, shit. Now we adapt. Mm-hmm. And there, that's that's nice about it, too. There's not... I don't feel like there's too much ego tied into it. Superficially. And, and a lot of investment from the coaches. Yeah. Um, that's what I, something I really love about our gym at Z's. Mm-hmm. Z's super dedicated to each and every one of us. Um, I've trained at a lot of different schools, like bigger jiu-jitsu schools with yeah. hundreds and hundreds of members. Um, and... You know, when I first started training at some of these big places, I'm not going to name names, but uh, I felt like I didn't get any personal attention from the people that I signed up to train with. You know, yep. the black belts. Yeah. The black belts seemed very uh, clicky. Yep. You know, like uh, you had to be one of them to even talk to them. Yep. Um, whereas at our gym, it feels like a family. Like we're all super lighthearted. Like I'm a brown belt, but any white belt can walk up to me and you know, flip me off right right, right on the mat. And I'm not going to take it so seriously. I might go down there and, you know, neon belly him. Yeah. Hard. And choke him out or something <laughs> just to teach him a lesson and then flip him off again. But it's all because we like each other. Yeah. You know? Um, I think yeah. I told Z that like Z has coached me. I have one coach in Phuket that's been really like dedicated to coaching me. Um, and I would say that Z has coached me as much, if not like slightly more, than that coach. And I didn't train with that coach consistently, my friend Eric. I didn't train with him consistently. But when I did, he was on me, you know, and Z has been on me. Like he's coached me through three or four roles. Mm-hmm. There's been no other place that I've trained in three years that that's happened. And that's shocking to me. Like I go for a coach and I expect a coach, like a coach should be investing, right? Yeah. Investing first and then like seeing how much the student will give back. But you're, you're right. Like Z's is very, it's very on it. It doesn't seem so mm-hmm. ego-based or clicky. So how do you feel being a woman training in our gym so far? What do you think? Yeah, it's been good. I don't... It's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys are hard. Yeah, we, we, we grind. <laughs> Would you, like, do something about getting past your legs? It'd be great. <laughs> yeah, we're... we're uh, well, Z's a pressure yeah. fighter, so he's, his background's wrestling, so he... He He's teaches us how to grind. He teaches yeah. us how to how to use pressure, and that's what people tell us in tournaments too. After we're done, we're like, Jesus Christ, dude, your pressure, your strength, was like uncanny. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, look at my coach. Yeah, do you like, see him? That, that's <laughs> that where it came from. Over there? <laughs> that's where it came from. Thank him. You know? Yeah, it's been good. Like I haven't. I don't feel like I've gotten outmanned or manhandled at any point in time, which is nice. And the roles with the girls have not been um, territorial, which is also very nice. And nobody, everybody has made eye contact with me, which I think is important. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. It's nice to like go into a place like that for sure. I'm glad you're enjoying your time yeah. with this. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to training there more too. Yeah, you haven't done any of the classes? No, no, my shoulder dislocated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a mess. Are you going to start doing the classes soon? I think so. I'm going to try to come tomorrow night, this week for sure. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So I got to start, so we're already like an hour and 20 minutes in, and I got to start getting to the deep questions, right? right? Okay. okay. So um, let's start it off with, with the big shebang. Um, 
what interests you the most about consciousness in general? The idea of consciousness, the idea of the mind and how we engage it. What interests you the most? I think being able to master it. Mm. But being able to master it in a way that's not so like, oh, I mastered that. I won, you know. More being able to to recognize it for what it is. What is it? I guess that that's amiable, isn't it? It's like, a big question. It always changes. Yeah. It's not like everything in life. It's fluid. And it's always changing. And to be able to go with the flow of that, I think that's the mastery is being able to flow with how consciousness shifts and how things change and not mm-hmm. attaching too strongly to, to one idea or another. That really... That just hit me like a ton of bricks when you said that. Mm, cool. Yeah. Um, cool. The mastery is not necessarily trying to control things into what you want it to be, right? Yeah. That's not mastering anything, right? Mastery is really just allowing things to be as they are and being okay with that. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of Bruce Lee's Be Like Water philosophy, yeah. right? You're not trying to force anything ever you're right. just adapting to your circumstance and going with the flow right and right. then when you do that you find a lot less resistance and so much more openness too like if you're having trouble problem solving and you're trying to force something to be the way that you expect it to be you're not going to be able to solve the problem we have to be able to think outside of the box and see the act of flow and be willing to see things different. And that is that to me is mastery, like like mm-hmm. you just said. What if you just tried to grab water and like force it into a square mm-hmm. <laughs> a position with your hands? Good luck. Yeah, you're not gonna be able to do it. But recognizing that you're not being able to do it and then being okay with not being able to do it and then being okay with whatever the outcome is of trying to do it, mm-hmm. I think is where like that's where we find a more joyful, happy life. Is when we're less um final final achievement oriented yeah i think um, most people think of mastery in that way yeah like i'm gonna master the violin and that's gonna happen when i can play you know all these songs right right but if what you're saying is true and i feel like it's more true what you're saying then true mastery of the violin would be yes learning all the classical stuff Mm -hmm. and drilling all that in but then once you know all that stuff letting go yeah. Like completely letting go. Like Jimi Hendrix was a master of guitar because he was yeah. able to let go of the classical um, restraints that most other musicians are are bound by. Yep. Right, and he's you know he has all the no- all that knowledge already, but he's not confined to that knowledge. He uses the knowledge to just kind of let it go and yeah and explore. See what happens when we let it go. I know since I've started to make this more of a practice in my life, I'm a lot happier, you know? Like, I'm not trying to control things, just like seeing how they evolve. In my jiu-jitsu practice, once I, and it's still a work in progress, of course, but once I stopped trying to master someone else's body through acts of control and more started to like master my reactions to the circumstances that were happening, now it's just funny, you know? (laughs) And there's something more carefree about the fact that it's funny instead of like being mad that I got triangled or or upset that I got hurt. Now I'm just like, no, I dislocated my shoulder. Yeah, I tore my knee. 
<laughs> yeah, I broke my hand. Like, and that goes throughout the whole of life. It just, mm. just doesn't really matter in the long run. So then mastering consciousness would not be gaining 100% mental control over it. Maybe it would include that. But also, also mm. understanding that you have that control and that you don't need to use or exert the control all the time. Or even, like, what if we don't have control? What do we do with that? Yeah. Like, are we okay with that? Or, or are we striving for the control of it? Do we think that there's going to be happiness or enlightenment or perfection in being able to control the stream of consciousness? I guess I tend to think if we're okay with whatever happening happening, that's kind of where mastery comes in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter the result. The acceptance of whatever happens. Yeah. I f- feel like a lot of people avoid meditation because they're like, oh, I have to sit still and I'm not allowed to think. So I can't think, but now I'm thinking. But I can't think, but now I'm thinking. You mm-hmm. know, And then they feel like they failed at mm-hmm. it because that's just the expectation that's been set up uh, on a large spectrum, like through articles and whatnot. Yeah, through like ads and content and stuff like that. But when people can sit down and just recognize it, it's going to stream through regardless. It's just you letting it pass by or, I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts on, on thinking during meditation and what that is? Um, I think there's a lot there. That's, a, that's another <laughs> big question. Um, thinking during meditation... Uh, well, there's certain meditation practices like Zen meditation where the purpose is to clear all thoughts. Right. Uh, but then there's a lot of other types of meditation like the observer meditation where you just want to allow the thoughts to come and go and just observe them and watch them and look for patterns in your thoughts and like find interesting uh, habits that your thoughts have. Um, so in that way, thoughts can be productive. You right. know, as long as you're not engaging with them. Uh, but it can also be helpful, too, in meditation if you find yourself getting stuck on a certain thought over and over or anchoring to a thought, then, hey, maybe that part of your life needs some more attention, you know? So thoughts yeah. can be an indicator of, like, where focus mm-hmm. needs to go, but they're also a huge distraction, too. Um, yeah. You know, if, if I sit down for a meditation... I usually sit down with a with a purpose in mind, like I want to work on this right now, or I want to explore this, or something like that. And if the thoughts that are coming in do not coincide with the intention or the goal, then um, I let those go. Right. Any thoughts that do come in that are related to the goal or whatever, I'll sit with a little bit more and ruminate on and unpack. Yeah. Um, so it depends on what your purpose is in the meditation, but... Yeah, it's so interesting. Thoughts are, you know, thoughts in, in meditation, but thoughts in everyday life, I think, is is um, something that most other people listening to this could probably relate a little bit more to. Yeah. You know, and how we engage with, again, the conversation in your mind. Yeah. The thoughts, you know. And the automatic reactions. I've been thinking a lot lately about how, like, why, why make people count the length of the inhale and the length of the exhale. And I don't have a lot of brain science behind it, right? Mm -hmm. Because I really don't research my techniques until after I've implemented them and seen success. And then Mm -hmm. I'll be like, oh, is there something out there that validates what I've been doing? But I feel like, 
what I'm trying to get people to do and trying to get myself to do by counting the breath is like use the logical part of the brain to override the reactive part of the brain so that in our everyday life we can override the reactive part of our brain like the limbic system mm -hmm. by like pulling into more presence with the logical aspect of what's going on because mm -hmm. i i know for years like my fight or flight was just on all the time everything i was just worried about everything everything was going to go wrong everything was going to be a problem all of it was going to be an issue not really thinking spending time thinking through the fact that why would it go wrong or how would it go wrong or how could i prevent it from going wrong or how can i problem solve these things and I think that's a thing for a lot of people is unpacking. Like you said, in meditation, you can unpack it. But in daily life, like, oh, why do I feel that way? Why am I having this thought again? Why am I having this fear-based thought again? Or even this, like, happy celebration thought again. Hmm. I, I like the way you described it also. Like, um, how am I, how am I going to put this? Because your meditation... What you what you're trying to teach your clients with like overriding one system with the logic system, um, again it's it's super useful. Um, I think the way that I teach meditation to other people is for a different purpose, and it's almost like I'm trying to help them override the logic part of their brain, and, yeah, and tap more into <laughs> the instinctual part, yeah, you know, like um, because. At least in my line of work, um, most people's mental struggles are because of the thoughts that they carry, you know, and yeah. the over analysis of it, you know, um, a lot of people are afraid to, to change because they're afraid to think about change in the first place, you know, um, so I almost try and get them out of their own way, you know, try and let's, let's relax that frontal prefrontal prefrontal cortex yeah. so that we can because i feel like there's a there's a much deeper layer you know yeah. this is the logic part but there's a there's a deeper layer to consciousness that like our highest self that just innately knows the answers to every every question we have if we just open our ears to listen to it and we can shut off or turn down the volume knob on that that inner conversation that's so good what you just said i feel like it's what's the snake that eats its tail or or orbors yeah or yeah, my wife has a tattoo of that on her yeah own. i noticed it mm -hmm. when i came that was like the first thing i noticed when she walked up mm -hmm. um i feel like it's almost like that like i i started using the prefrontal cortex because i was having a lot of like emotional reactions to things in my life and then once i started to like use the more logic part of my brain about whether it was necessary to have these emotional reactions or not, then I was able to get deeper into how things were feeling. And I think reactions might be different than feelings are. Like mm. My reactions were just on autopilot. And I was able to use the logical part of my brain to stop that autopilot. But they were emotional reactions. But they right? were emotional mm. reactions. But then I was able to get from, from that into how things feel and then what feels right for me but my access was through i've never had to articulate this so this is new my access was through that logical aspect mm -hmm. of having to create reason for how you're feeling how i was so well, it sounds like it started with the feeling started 
with the emotional side and mm-hmm. then you use the logic or you tapped into the, the logical side to sort of understand the emotional content better yeah um, and then go back to the emotional content yeah so, stabilized right stabilized it so with a new understanding yeah you're able to like talk your arousal level down like if you're freaking out and panicking you'd yeah. be like okay you know I, there's no reason for me to freak out here you know i can sit with this and what is this all about why am i feeling the need to get up and leave this room right now you yeah. know um so then you're able to go back to the emotion for greater understanding yeah that's awesome and seeing just the way that they affected me you know just back to that sensory deprivation tank mm-hmm. like getting out of the tank and seeing the shit that was going on in my head was so unnecessary and wasn't even true. It was just typical, like, fear of the past or, like, ruminating on the past and fear of the present and getting out and having to, like, pull myself back together to go back into it, I guess, is probably symbolic of, of what I've done over the years with my feelings and emotions. Mm-hmm. Stabilize it out. Settle down. Like, create some serious... I probably went to the extreme. I definitely, like, beat it out of me. Um... And then would go back into the feelings and then think about, is this going to kill me mm-hmm. with everything? Like, what does it mean if this doesn't go my way? Or what, if it, what does it mean if like, this fear that I have comes true? Will it ruin my whole existence? Right. And so all those questions that you just came up with, they all come from the rational mind, right? right. The prefrontal cortex. Yeah. So... The questions themselves, once you start asking them, can become anxiety-producing too, right? Once you start mm-hmm. asking the questions. So, <laughs> so again, like um, I love that you were able to start with the feeling, rationalize it or intellectualize it for greater understanding, go back to the feeling with a new understanding and feel it differently and more presently. I think that we can do the same thing if we start from like the prefrontal level two to access higher level, right? Yeah. So if we can start with our rational mind, I feel like I've done this in my own development, but start with the rational mind, but then try and reach this higher level of consciousness above the rational mind where, you know, this is like ultimate truth level where right. you just know intuitively you know, the answers, listening to your gut feeling, that type of thing. So experiencing this higher consciousness and then going back to the intellectual level with this new understanding of like, oh, hey, I'm not just my thinking mind. Right. I'm so much more. I'm like this this ever-present underlying calm under all that anxiety thinking. You know, I'm like this... You know, uh, in one of the meditations I do, <clears throat> I love it described this way. But um, if you think of like the, the entire sky, um, like clouds, clouds are your thoughts, right? right? Some days you have lots of thoughts and it's really cloudy. Some days, sparse clouds. Um, if you've ever flown through a storm cloud, you know how turbulent <laughs> that can be, right? That's like, that's like our, our turbulent mind in that yeah. moment. It's a storm, right? But always, 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 when you fly above the clouds, when you pop out, it's always blue skies. It's always clear above the clouds. And so I think of my thoughts as like that cloud level. And above it is this higher state of consciousness that's always serene. It allows everything to come and go through it. You know, there's no fighting. Airplanes can come and go through it. Thoughts can come and go through it. Clouds, whatever. Um, But it's just like you said, like that acceptance of whatever happens happens whatever comes comes and that's like this higher 
level of consciousness. So using that understanding, going back to your mind, to your conscious level and, and saying like, okay, I'm more than my thoughts. Right. I have more control over my thoughts than I thought I did. And I can choose which thoughts I want to pay attention to rather than them choosing me. So I kind of feel like all of this is leading back to people just developing a sense of themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, what they are separate from, from the thoughts or from the happenings in their life. But what they truly are, right? Not, not what they, what their ego is, right? not Not what they tell themselves, not what they own. Right. But like what, if everything was stripped away, would you be okay? Right. You know, what would you still be? Yeah. If everything was gone, Mm -hmm. everything, physical body, Mm -hmm. job. What are you? Yeah. And being okay with that, I I have no idea, (laughs) right? Like, I, we can talk about what we think we would be, but until we're in a situation like that, we don't really know, you know? And I would imagine that this is something people probably experience when they're dying, is Mm -hmm. being confronted with the sense of self, what they stood for, for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And then they leave, right? And we don't get to have those conversations about what that felt like for people to go through that. Yeah. Um, There's been a lot of research done on near-death experiences and things like that, and they're really similar. Uh, The reports are really similar to people who have psychedelic experiences, too. Yeah, I'm reading Stealing Fire right now, and he talks Mm -hmm. about um, near-death experiences and, and how it's like a state of ecstasis to a degree. Like, people tend to be happier and go into... One of the big things he said was that the standard person enters REM sleep at 90 minutes, but the happier you are, the longer it takes you to enter REM. So depressed Mm. people will enter REM at like 80 minutes, and then average happy people will enter at like 100, but people who have had a near-death experience enter at 110 minutes. So they're like off the charts happier than people who who are just generally happy Mm -hmm. in life. Which I thought was really interesting. Well, if you come, if you flirt with death or you come close to dying, I mean, I, that's happened to me a couple of times and I always come back with a greater appreciation yeah. for being alive, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, exercising your relationship to mortality. Yeah. Right? Like Exploring your relationship to mortality. Yeah. What does it even mean? Because we're all, we're all mortal. Mm-hmm. We're all going to die and we're all going to watch people die. And that's not easy. That's yeah. really not easy. Um... Well, and that's part of knowing yourself, too, is that yeah. you're physically mortal, but spiritually you're immortal. Right. Right? And once you understand that, that you're, you're immortal in some sense, you know, the, a lot of the fear around death just kind of goes away. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to lose my body, but I'm still going to exist in some way. Yeah. I can deal with that. There's you know? still this chain of existence that happens, right? Like every, my mom died five years ago, and... Every person that I meet now, like, gets a bit of her, you know, they hear about her, or they hear about something that she did, or like, I hear things that I do that are her, you know, and we, we live on. She lives on through you. Yeah. And then through the people that I've impacted, Yeah. too, like, they get pizza, pieces of her that she got from pieces of her mom, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And when, I don't know, I guess when we attach less to the physical and more to, I guess, maybe the metaphysical. It's easier to address mortality. Because even though people aren't really engaged in their bodies, they're very physically, like, body-oriented. Sure. But there's, have you ever heard of spiritual bypassing? 
No. So spiritual bypassing is a thing where, you know, people will gain an understanding of their greater spiritual self that it, that that part of themselves that is immortal, and then they'll always just like kind of skip to that to to justify that you know whatever I'm doing in my present life doesn't really matter because I'm just a spiritual being like. I can be a total jerk in my life. Doesn't really matter. Like, I mean, I'm an immortal yeah. being. Like, you know, my physical self. You know, I can I can be a glutton. I can eat McDonald's every day. It doesn't really matter because I'm not my physical self. Yeah, I'm a spiritual being, people. <laughs> right, and that's spiritual bypassing. So people who use their spiritual yeah. knowledge as an excuse to justify living a shitty life in your in your physical yeah. self, right, and. um I think I used to do that too when I first was illuminated to the knowledge of the spiritual realm and it yeah. really clicked for me. I for sure felt like like uh, I had no personal investment in my physical self. Right. Know? But now I'm starting to learn the longer I practice that the physical, the experience of ourselves through this physical manifestation is so very important. Like yeah. we don't even we don't even recognize the importance of it. Yeah. Right. Um, our consciousness is unable to comprehend for some reason, like how really important this experience is and how many of us take it for granted. Yeah. Uh, I feel like if we're truly going to be holistic as spiritual beings, we have to fully embrace this physical existence too, because we're here to learn something. Like our spirit is trying to learn something. Consciousness is trying to learn something through having a physical body. Yeah. This is just one of our many manifestations. And it's really cool to have a physical body. This is awesome. It feels great. Yeah, it's awesome. It is so awesome. And when we can master our own body, that's amazing too. You know, like the amount of people that I work on that like, I don't know, they'll get blood flow back to their arm or they'll feel better afterwards and they'll be like, oh, I had no idea that I could feel that good. Like they're mm -hmm. living very physically in their bodies, but they're not aware of like sensation. I ask people to describe sensation a lot. What's your pain like? Does it ache? Is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it continual? Does it radiate? And just getting people to even think like that is like mind blowing for them. But again, the opportunity that happens for people when they start to think outside of just like, I have a body. Right. Like, what is that? What does that body mean? Like, you can eat to, like, change your hormone levels. Mm -hmm. You don't have to just go inject steroids. You don't have to take, like, prescriptions or supplements necessarily. You can, like, your body can assimilate nutrition and exercise and turn it into these really amazing things that we have so externalized. It's, it's really crazy. Like, the opportunity to have a body and a body that does things... Oh, our body wow. is like the most amazing bit of hardware mm -hmm. ever created. Yeah. That we know of anyway. Like it's self-healing. It's self-regulating. It, you know, if it's out of balance in any way, if the pH in your blood is off, it will make adjustments. If yeah. your hormones are off, it'll make adjustments. Like it's self-regulating. Not many things in this world are, are self-regulating like that. Even like... I remember reading once how when a baby's nursing, like the saliva in the baby communicates to the nipple yes. what the baby needs, and then the milk adjusts. What the like? No formula could ever do that, mm -hmm. right? And form, I'm not. That's not even a dog on formula, but that's just showing how amazing the human body is and how it makes adjustments. And the more that we know about how we feel in it or how we function in it, 
that's amplified tenfold instead of being disassociated from how it feels or what it needs or what it looks like. Mm -hmm. To really knowing yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. Physical movement does that too, you know, and it activates a lot of neural pathways to, to move physically and be versatile in your mm -hmm. movement as well. Yeah, so the, that reminds me of like, what about the people who are like paralyzed, who can't move, who can't, who can't enjoy the pleasures of the physical body or the stresses of the physical body, yeah. right? Those are just as meaningful. Uh, the pains of the physical body, which, by the way, I think it's hilarious that people can't um, put words to their pain. I'm sure when you ask them, like, <laughs> what does your pain feel like? Oh, it hurts. Yeah. Uh, Great. Yeah. Well. It tells me a lot. <laughs> you know? And, and the the fact that, that someone would, would describe their pain as using that word hurts, right? That's yeah. just a label that you put on it that tells you that it's a bad thing yeah it doesn't tell you anything about the pain it's just <laughs> it just makes your experience of it a negative thing whereas you're asking them these questions like is it sharp is it radiate whatever if you can put those words to it then you know that has no emotional content to yeah. it right Ra radiating pain doesn't mean anything emotionally yeah but hurting oh, means something That's emotionally really interesting. Right? yeah it's the story that you tell yourself yeah so if you're like this pain hurts well i can change the story i do that in my running yeah so i have bad knees like nine surgeries <laughs> oh. and i'll be running and my knees will hurt the whole time and i can either be saying you know my knees hurt the you know my knees are killing me right which is an emotional charge yeah. word or i can say you know this pain is is there but it's teaching me something. It's telling me that I need to change my biomechanics. Communicating. Or, right, your exactly. Your body's just communicating to your brain when it feels something. Right. Pain it's, is a good thing, people. Yeah. And two, like, the, I think the body registers new sensation as pain right away to, like, turn on protective things, right? Mm. To, like, be it's able like, to... unsure of this. Yeah. Let me categorize if this is actual pain and give it time. But then if you attach it to pain and then you carry that story on to, oh, no, I won't do yoga because that hurt my body. I know a lot of people, I work with a lot of people um, that aren't athletes that are like, I, I hurt so bad after our last session, and I'm like, but, but what do you mean? Oh, like my muscles were really sore. Like productively sore or like unproductively sore? Oh, I don't know. You know, like there's not even that. No that awareness of that. Awareness of yeah. what's productive and what's unproductive and how muscle soreness feels compared to to how like injury feels mm -hmm. just pain or hurt mm -hmm. and god that's really interesting about it it is feeling oriented it's not or emotion oriented the label yeah the label you choose is, yeah yeah where i think like i like people to be able to create like a vocabulary even when they come out of a position i'll say like now hold here and notice how the right leg and the left leg feel in relationship or in comparison to each other and create a vocabulary about that so that you can link cause and effect. What you just did on the right leg, you have not done on the left leg. Mm. This is how the right leg feels. This is how the left leg feels. And we do that on both sides so that there's a vocabulary for each side, but building that vocabulary around your body mm -hmm. instead of just pain, ouch, hurt. So with your understanding of consciousness i mean you you and i think a lot alike in a lot of ways mm -hmm. um and i'm sure you've done a lot of your own personal research on these topics you know this is an important 
It's a very important topic to me. Yeah. Consciousness in general. I think it should be an important topic for everyone. Yeah. Because <laughs> we all have it. We all yeah. have one. You know, there's no escaping it. Um, so you might as well try and understand it. Um, with all this knowledge and self-reflection and practices that you've been through in your life, like how do you how do you think of consciousness as like the role that it plays for you on a daily basis? Like, do you, do you engage it actively on a daily basis? Or, I mean, I still fall into pitfalls sometimes where my mind goes on autopilot you yeah. know, and I'm not being mindful, but yeah. I like to think that, you know, 15 years of meditation practice has improved my ability to maintain mindfulness more during the day, Yeah, you know? Um, and I try, I mean, I wouldn't have created this podcast if I don't think about this stuff all the time. Right. Like literally in my day, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, like I'm thinking about consciousness in some way. Yeah. Like trying to figure this puzzle out a little bit. Um, how, do, how do you engage with it? I think it's probably quite similar. Like every, every conversation that I have or everything that I do, I would say I definitely have like slips where I go just into autopilot. Um, but I, I'm better at catching myself now. But most of my days are spent kind of analyzing what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, or if I've had a reaction, why I've had that reaction. If like my restlessness about getting work done is about like society and my work, or about me and my work and how I relate to that, or um, in my relationships to people, I really try to analyze like, oh, if I want to see this person, or if I don't want to see this person, what is that about? I guess just try to watch like whether I'm operating off of a more flow based relaxed state or a a more fear monger hoarding state but you're also approaching it from an inquisitive place like you, yeah. you don't just like uh have an have an interaction with someone and just be like oh well that's what it was you know I'm gonna yeah. just not think about it but you go back and you you're like oh that's interesting why I felt that way in the presence of that person and you know I want to understand that more whereas I think a lot of people would would not even go that deep you know I like to converse about it as well like if I have an interaction with people that sticks with me for a while especially if it's a negative one I'll usually go back and be like just like say what I felt with the person yeah with the person that takes a lot of courage so that there's not assuming well I just think conversations are so great we can stay really heavy in our mind but we don't really know what's going on with the other person. And sometimes, like, I want to know if it's me or if it was me perceiving that it was them or if it was them projecting something on yeah. to me. And the more honest the conversation can be, the better. I do try to stay really aware of how all things are going, which is tiring. Mm-hmm. But to engage with my clients correctly and to, to live by the morals and standards that I have for my own life, I think I... I do that for that purpose. Mm. So your con- your interaction with your consciousness is a lot about your relations to other people. Yeah, for sure. And connections to other people. For sure. Wow. I'm very much about like loyalty and camaraderie and that sort of ride or die spirit to be in it with with people and engaged in those conversations with people. That's awesome. I wish I could be more connected. You know, yeah, it's something that I've wanted to try and improve on for myself is, is how do I make myself more vulnerable so that others can connect with me? Because, um, 
and my wife tells me this all the time. I've been told this since I started getting tattoos, but like, <laughs> she'll be like, you look like a big, big, strong, mean man or something. And, and so I don't necessarily look approachable. Yeah. And so on one hand, that's a good thing. Because I don't necessarily want to talk to everybody on the street because <laughs> most people I talk to, like, they're stuck in the surface level conversations. Yeah. I like to have these deep conversations. Yeah. So it keeps a lot of people at bay. It's like a filter, yeah. right? If you're, if you're confident enough in yourself to make it through my filter and start a conversation with me, then you pass the first test, yeah. right? Yeah, we're so very like similar that. in that, yep. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying my best. Uh, now in my mid thirties to engage more of my softer side. I'm using softer as like in quotations, like my yeah. feminine energy, right? Yeah. I've really embraced my masculine energy up to this part, point, which was what I was told I should do. And now I'm starting to understand that in order to be really fully balanced as a person, I need to have that feminine energy just like the masculine. Right. It's the yin and yang, right? Yeah. Um, and so, for me, trying to be more vulnerable with others, trying to put myself out there, trying to act silly, you know? Usually, yeah. I'm a very stoic person, um, and so people can't read me very well, and they can't feel... I've People have told me this, like, I don't know how to connect with you emotionally because you don't show any emotion, ever. <laughs> like, ever. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. So I'm like, oh, like, I'm missing out on all these great opportunities to connect with people because I can't change my facial expression. You know, so I'm really trying to work on being vulnerable so that I um, open myself up to more connection yeah. with others. Because it's, it's, yeah. it gets lonely sometimes up here in my mind, you know, constantly thinking about consciousness and existence and not um, almost feeling disconnected from what everyone else is doing, you know? Like, yeah. I feel like I'm out Just here like... on an island, like, trying to figure out... The meanings of the universe and everyone else is is living their life yeah it's like oh, i want to do that too right you know playtime's really important for that and laughter and and being able to engage but that's that's difficult like i'm pretty similar to you i don't like i have tattoos and i've been told i look formidable and unapproachable and i'm all right with that because it keeps a lot of people then i can choose right mm -hmm. who i who i approach um but my mom used to tell me all the time like, you got to get down off your fucking mountain and, like, engage in life. And I never, even still, I don't know fully what that means. But trying to learn more and more about how to, I don't know, commune with people. Well, it's kind of like the saying, like, get off your high horse. Yeah. Right? Like, get off your mountain. Like, stop thinking that you're above everyone else and walk down that mountain and connect with people on the ground level. You right. Know? Not everyone is going to be as far along in their in their spiritual journey as you are yeah. so and that's okay you know, everyone's on their own path yeah you know we're just maybe we're just further along that doesn't make us any better or any worse but every once in a while we need to pull ourselves out of our own stuff and go connect with someone on their yeah. level right and maybe maybe it's not even farther along like maybe people that can laugh and joke and not think about any yeah, of totally. these things are farther <laughs> along because ignorance is bliss right the more that the amount of energy that I expend on thinking about my interactions and analyzing whether I'm doing it out of selfishness or out of intention or out of habit or out of joy that's fucking exhausting I could do so many other things in that time yeah <laughs> that might be more fun <laughs> if we were all just carefree and lighthearted, yeah like, 
That's a lot of extra energy. And the Thai culture is very good at that. Like, you know, they might work 14 hours a day, but if a friend comes in for four hours, they're going to sit on the floor with their friend and eat food and laugh and close the shop and have fun. You know, that would never just happen here. Yeah. And it was really good to, like, live over there because of that. Because they just, they're just very, I don't know, oriented towards each other. So they work hard, Mm -hmm. but they also make it a point to make time for play yeah we don't do that enough yeah. here. we make it a time we make it a point to work more yeah <laughs> and to play less i think they actually just let play come in oh and just open to a point more. yeah they're like just they're like, like oh, yes man changed yeah. okay because that's that's where the karma plays in oh this happened karma 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 mm-hmm. karma you know, it's not... No reason to stick to my plan because yeah. this presented itself. So yep. this is what meant to happen and this is what I need to pay attention to. Yeah, which is really... That that was really cool to see. Very challenging at yeah. first to go by. Especially for a Westerner. Yeah, yeah. My brain is like, <laughs> I want to see things happen exactly like this. Nice. But the coolest experiences happened when I just was open to whatever was going to yeah. happen. Well, thank you for coming and, and sharing all that stuff. Yeah, thank today. you. It was that awesome. Was great. Um feel like we covered so much and we have so much more to talk about uh so yeah love to have you back on yeah, in the future great um why don't you do, let everyone know how they can um contact you how they can find you on social media how they can find your uh website uh the website is wtfempire.com and if you're looking for the classes it's under wtf yoga recovery system on the website um and my instagram is wtf state of mind and Facebook is WTF Yoga. I've gone through a few name changes. <laughs> but it's mostly, I think if you Google WTF Yoga, you'll find me. Nice. Yeah. Um, if you had, from all your life experience, if you could, s- not sum it up, but if you could impart <clears throat> one small summation, one little tidbit of knowledge from your experience to the audience um, to help add to their life what what would it be what would um enjoy the people around you enjoy the people yeah. around you fully 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 be with yeah. them fully they'll die yeah material things will not yeah yeah so connect connect yep wow. and just be in laughter about it you know let people be themselves let yourself be yourself laugh about everything yeah why not yeah right it's best medicine <laughs> yeah. yeah right on yeah. well thanks for coming yeah thank Appreciate you Shane. It. and we'll talk to you soon great All right, stick around, folks, uh, for the next episode. We're closely reaching the 40th episode, and we'll be soon uh, upgrading all of our systems, um, all of our mics and all that stuff to get you better sound quality. So please keep listening, and please keep supporting the podcast. Uh, Thanks again to our guests, and uh, we'll see you on the mats. Yeah. All right. Phew. Man, that was a good podcast. Uh, I want to thank Adrian again for coming on the show. Um, Man, we covered so many amazing topics, got really deep into um, yoga philosophy and uh, consciousness in general. Really hope to have Adrian back on. She's going to be a great resource for all of us um, to expand our experiential knowledge of consciousness so again want to thank her for coming on for all of you who uh continue to listen hope you guys are liking the new segments um i just got the gopro in in the mail the other day so we're gonna set it up and and see what we can do to try and get these things up on youtube 
um, more and more. So uh, we've, we've got one recording up there on YouTube, so go check that out. Go check out our YouTube page, the Mind Ops YouTube page. It's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Also, uh, go to the Mind Ops website, uh, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com is the website. Um, we also have the YouTube page with a number of videos uh, that I've uploaded, breaking down a lot of the concepts that we talk about in here. Please continue to like and share all of our stuff on social media. That's how we get the, the word out. Please donate to the podcast. If you find any of the information useful, all the donations go back into the podcast. I don't take any profits. Uh, we're just trying to make this uh, as good of an experience for all of you as possible. So until next time, this is Shane signing off with Conversations of the Mind.